Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, this is Ephraim Smith, and I'm with my brother, Grant Skelton. Grant, how you doing, bro? What's up, Ephraim? What's up, guys? Man, I just, man, you're just too smooth, man. You know, I have to work hard <laughs> to, to have swag, but you just got natural swag. You just, you just naturally smooth. So, uh, uh, I, I differ, man. I, I think you should ask all those thousands of people at Exponential Conference who had more swag, because you went in. You went in on that, that stage, man. God used you a lot. Oh, man, I, I appreciate you, bro. Well, hey, everyone that's tuning in, welcome to another episode, another webinar known as Candid Conversations. And uh, you've seen me, if you've been watching these webinars from the beginning, host with Todd Wilson. You've seen Grant host with Todd Wilson. Now Grant and I get to be together. So <laughs> hopefully Todd will get to come back. Because I don't know, this this could be so good that, uh, you know, Todd will have to ask us if he can come back. Uh, But today on Candid Conversations, we are having a robust conversation about race, about prejudice, bias, with the one and only, the man, the myth, (laughs) the the (laughs) prince of California preaching. (laughs) The church planter extraordinaire, the multi-ethnic church movement leader, the best smile this side of heaven. His name is Pastor Albert Tate. Man, I need you to come to my church and introduce me every week, man. That's what I'm talking about. That was an introduction right there. What's up, y'all? Grant, how you doing, man? Ephraim, my brother. Hey, I'll introduce you like that every week as long as, you know, every time I'm down in Southern Cal, you take me to Roscoe's. Hey, Doc, it's right up the street. I'll take you right there, man. I'll take you right there. Man, how, uh, how y'all doing? Are y'all safe up there? I know the fires and all that kind of stuff is going on. Man, thanks for asking. Yeah, you know, we're, uh, things are getting better. I mean, today, the, the air quality in the Sacramento area, uh, it went from unhealthy the past few days to moderate. So, uh, so my wife and I were able to get out and take a walk this morning, uh, without fear of breathing in something that we don't need to, but, um, you know, there's still parts of Northern California, uh, where we need to pray for safety, 
uh, where we uh, are working to uh, with other ministries to raise resources to help families in need. So, uh, yes, for those of you um, outside California, you can be praying for us. But also, uh, you know, we, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters down in Louisiana yeah. and yeah. Texas, uh, yeah. especially around the, the Houston area, the, and then going over to Louisiana, to Baton Rouge, all the way up to Shreveport, uh, maybe even in the parts of Arkansas, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, difficult. Uh, I, I feel like we got a physical, a physical hurricane, and then we got a we're in the midst of a pandemic and a racial hurricane. So I feel like this conversation is so needed and necessary, yeah. and I'm so thankful for Exponential for creating this space for us to have some honest conversation. Yeah, well, you know, um, we we had a topic that we were going to cover. We may get there. I think we will, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't have a candid conversation about the actual moment that we are in right now. I mean, mm -hmm. what happened yesterday, I don't know if there's been a moment like this since the civil rights movement, where on the same day, the NBA shut down, uh, four, I believe at least four professional baseball teams didn't play a number of major soccer teams didn't play. Um, I, 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 was or, I was already home when I found out. I'd have walked off my job yesterday. I'd have just. <laughs> I was oh, like, man, I, I should have just walked out of my office yesterday in the afternoon. Tennis and is where. Tennis. You, you know, it's oh, bad. Know tennis was like, we not even going to play today. And, and I realize many people are watching this currently, but you're also watching it. Uh, months from this moment. Um, but I think there's a reality uh, as we talk about prejudice, as we talk about bias, yo, it lives, it breathes, and it's showing up. I think one of the things that history will mark is the juxtaposition of Jacob Blake um, being shot in his back, I think upwards of eight times as he heads to the truck where his, where, his, where his boys, his sons are, and the police feeling so threatened by that, that physical movement that they didn't, they didn't body slam him, where they had access, physical access to do, they killed him. In that in juxtaposition with a white 17-year-old boy with an AR-15 walking through the streets of a protest, police officers engage him not to question the legality or him being permitted to have that firearm, but they offered him a bottle of water. And the one being seen as a threat with no weapon and one carrying an illegal, an, an illegal weapon, not being threatened, but actually being nourished by the police officers is a glimpse of the reality that I feel in my bones and I feel like that tension and that dynamic is what breaks my heart, what angers me and frustrates me with the, the bias and the prejudice that we see in our police officers. Uh, not all of them, but the ones that end up on video have proven to be this. Um, whereas they don't give us the benefit of the doubt and we have no weapon, but a white 17-year-old boy gets the full benefit of doubt 
and he has an illegal AR-15 around his neck. Yeah. Uh, Grant, I, I want you to, to step in here in a second. What, what I'm going to do is just give a general yeah. kind of understanding of prejudice and bias that yeah. then can help us have the candid conversation that will be important for those viewing um, around what we're, the moment we're in. Um, so in some ways, prejudice and bias are intertwined because bias is a prejudice. It's a form of prejudice. And so prejudice, you could just break down to you're prejudging someone. So you don't know the person's story. You don't know their background, but just based on their skin color, their physical features, their accent, what neighborhood they're, they're in, uh, whether they have tattoos or not, the kind of haircut they have, you could just say, I think that person is, or yeah. I deem them something and you, and you don't know uh, the larger narrative, heritage, circumstance around that person. Bias is, it's like prejudice plus favoritism. It's like, um, so, so it's like, it's, it's, it's not just I'm prejudging someone, but it's like I, I'm, I'm prejudging because I tend to believe that when I come up on an African-American young man, I'm going to receive something different than if I'm coming upon a white young man. So if I see a young black guy, I, I'm not only prejudging, but when I have an equal situation with someone who's white, they get a favoritism, they get a treatment from me that the person that's non-white doesn't get. And that gets to what you're talking about, uh, Pastor Albert, when you say, how is it that um, regardless of the circumstances before that George Floyd dies in the street unarmed, but Dylan Roof can go into a black church and kill people armed. And when he's apprehended, He's not killed. He's not shot. He's taken into custody. And I believe he was given Burger King or McDonald's or something. He was fed before he was interrogated. And yeah. so that's where the bias comes. And you go, how is that? Like, how does an armed person get a cup of water or get Burger King and an unarmed person gets seven bullets in the back? So, Grant, I, I need you to come in on this because you, you're going to give us the millennial take on this. You're going to help us understand uh, how, how the emerging generation is navigating this moment. So you, if you want to talk about prejudice and bias, you can. Or if you just want to share, like, just where your heart, yeah. because you're so, I mean, you are so on the front lines of the emerging generation and how they're viewing the moment we're in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the, the fact that the kid was 17 years old uh, speaks into this not just being something from our past, but something that's very current today, even in the next generation. Um, I mean, that's a that's Gen Z. That's I'm a millennial and they talk about millennials a lot. That's that's Gen Z. Um, so I think I always say race is not just a hot topic. It's 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 so important for the future of the church because it's one of the most diverse generations there is. And I used to have this thinking that because they're so diverse, the the 
their ability to have diverse friendships, therefore proximity, therefore empathy uh, would be bigger. But I, I have been surprised by, um, yeah, how much racial tension has continued even in the next generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, what I've what I've been noticing with the church, and as we're talking to church leaders, especially when it comes to prejudice and bias, um, I Ephraim, I've just started saying it. I'm convinced of it. Other people are saying I'm not the only one. I'm not the creator of this, but this racism, this prejudice, this bias has been discipled into us. Mm. And I think the answer, because I used to. I used to uh, think like you, Grant. I used to think, man, our kids are just going to have proximity, and that proximity yeah. is going to breed an em- uh, empathy that just hasn't been there. That's not true. And Satan is too crafty, and sin is too intentional for us to assume that it's going to passively go away because of proximity. What I've realized is we've discipled racism in, and in order for racism to get out, it's got to be discipled out. So we've yeah. got to see um, prejudice and bias as something that we've got to biblically call out, teach against, disciple through, um, and we've got to see racial reconciliation and how we see the other as as spiritual formation. When you think about it, the outworkings of the gospel, spiritual disciplines uh, should be justice. But there's a whole propaganda machine. There's a huge effort, and we'll feel this, that's, that's launched against this idea because if we never see racism as, pre- as in prejudice, as bias, if we never see it, uh, number one, if we don't see it, it's hard for us to preach against it. And if we, if we are convinced that it's not real, it's hard for the Holy Spirit to give us any kind of conviction on something that we don't even think is real. So I feel like conversations like this, where yeah. we got to call it out and we got we to gotta help each other see it. And now we got video to help see it. We got to yeah. see it and acknowledge that it's there. And we as church leaders have got to disciple it out. It cannot just be a reaction to a CNN headline. So when George Floyd, you can't, the, the only time you talk about race is when you react to a CNN headline. And even then you don't feel confident to talk about it by yourself. You call your nearest black friend to come and sit on the stage with you and help make sure I don't say nothing stupid. So I don't get in trouble. So let me call somebody black to have this conversation. And I ain't mad at that. I'm not mad at that. But what I am mad at is that the only time the conversation comes up is when we're reacting to CNN, MSNBC or Fox news. When I don't know, we've made change. And I'll know that the NBA ain't leading better than the church is leading when we don't use it as a reaction to the headline news like everybody else is, but we use it as a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we having a conversation, not because we react into culture, but because we are responding to Christ and how he's called us to live and to love right now. On time you're going to hear a white evangelical preacher talk about race is when it's been on the news the whole week. And we got to do better than that. Yeah, I I wanted to ask a quick question. Um, I, I like that. I, I I feel honored to be a part of this conversation. And so when I saw y'all us emailing back and forth about like, okay, well we're supposed to talk about bias and prejudice, and should we do a special edition in light of Jacob Blake and Kyle Rittenhouse? Like, uh, but like you already started. I mean, this is like the perfect canvas of uh, the difference of bias and prejudice with these guys. 
Um, but this is like you already mentioned a major, major event for, for like the audience that it may be predominantly as pastors um, and leaders. How do you feel like um, bias and prejudice plays out in the church um, in everyday life that we can uh, be active to not just notice, but like unlearn and disciple out of, like you mentioned. Yeah. Well, I'll take one shot at that. And then Albert, you come in, you know, um, another piece about bias is that it's, it's systemic. So, um, you know, prejudice can just be something housed in somebody's soul, somebody's heart, somebody's mindset. And that prejudice might play into how they see their neighbor that's different than them. Um, how they see a coworker that they really don't talk to uh, in, in the break room. But mm-hmm. biased is it's, it's broader because it's systemic. And so in, in the church, we have to come to a place where we don't just see uh, the, the issue of race in such rugged individualistic ways where we just, where, because two things happen. One is we can pull ourselves away from the table going, well, I'm not racist. Yeah. I'm, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not biased. Or we can get, personally offended when somebody starts talking general about a system and then we think we're being called a racist. So, so I've encountered some brothers and sisters right now that they see this from such an individualistic standpoint and they don't see it as systemic that they, they either push themselves away from the table and think it has nothing to do with them or they get offended thinking they're being called racist. And so I think the church has to start with a biblical understanding that racism, bias, and prejudice as sin, sin is not just housed in somebody's soul. It's housed in systems, and the Bible shows us that. So we see sin in the heart of of people in the Bible, but we also see systemic sin, Assyria, Babylon, the Roman Empire. So when the Gentiles and the Jews were trying to have Christian community together in the New Testament, and Paul in the book of Romans is talking to them when he's saying to the Roman Gentiles, don't see yourselves as better than, don't don't see, you know, don't look down on these. Why did he have to say that? Because they were in a system yeah. where yeah. Romans had privilege, where Gentiles had power and privilege over Jews. So they had to process through the systemic biases that would cripple their ability to be church. And we've got to do that today. Pastor Albert Tate's going to come and say something way more brilliant than what I was trying to say. It don't get better than that. You just broke down systemic injustice in institutions in 35 seconds. I ain't never seen nothing so masterful in my life. Like, I could have skipped a whole semester in seminary if I just talked to you on the phone for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think seminary is another great point. I think many, many pastors and leaders were trained in seminaries. Yeah, yeah. Let's take this. Let's talk, about, let's talk about your homiletics class. Let's talk about your preaching classes. Now, some of the best preachers in American history have been black preachers. Some, some, some of the best preaching 
in the history of this country, and I'd argue the world, have been preachers who have been people of color. How many people of color did you study in your preaching homiletics class? I sipped the coffee right there because I can give you, give you some time to come up with something. How, I know, how, that was intentional. <laughs> how, how many people of color theologians shape your systematic theology? Now, I know they offered other theology. So you had systematic theology, and then you had um, uh, black liberation theology. But did you see what, what happened there? See, just, just by the nature of how it's positioned, systematic theology is main normal white theology. Secondary theology is, oh, if you want to study Latino theology or black theology or James Cole, then they introduce those other sources. Just yeah. by that categorization alone, you have established one as normal, one as the standard, one as primary, yeah. the other one abnormal, substandard and secondary, not primary. And you didn't say one racist word. You didn't say the N word. You ain't say nothing racist at all, but you just gave a display of how a whole system sends a message to me that my perspective is secondary. And in order for me to succeed in this white institution, in order for me to succeed in evangelical spaces, I better know what's normal. And here's the other thing. Um, one of the advantages and the privileges of being white in this conversation of race, you get a chance to opt in and out at your leisure, at your comfort level. So you can talk about it or you can not talk about it. It don't matter. You, there'll be no consequences to you at all. You can do a sermon about it, you can preach about it, or not at all. Ain't nobody gonna say, I'm about to stop giving to this white evangelical church because y'all ain't talking about race and the injustices that are happening in these black communities. And he's not saying, y'all not talking about it and I'm gonna stop giving, said no church ever that's white evangelical and conservative. And I'm, I'm using hyperbole, but I'd be hard pressed to find somebody. Yeah, so yeah. Those, just those little things alone that we swim in suggest to us that there's prejudice and bias all around, all up in these pews, all up in the pulpits, all up in these sermons is prejudice and bias. So I think the first thing before we can start changing, we got to at least acknowledge that it's there and take off our glasses and start looking for it. And in order to start seeing it, we got to start listening. We got to start listening. Yes. We're so quick to defend. We're so quick to bring our perspective, which has had the privilege of not having to experience the perils of being a minority in America. So you got a perspective that is your perspective. But here's the thing about listening. You discover that your perspective is not the only one. So instead of being so quick to defend police or to talk about how it is that we should engage and that, well, if, if Colin Kaepernick would have found a better way to protest, I would have listened to him. But because he didn't protest in a way that I thought was appropriate, I'm going to ignore him. If Jake Floyd would have, would have just not resisted arrest, then he wouldn't have been dead. But since he resisted arrest, that equates and that values and that justifies death. Not extra, not extra prison time, not maybe more force, but it, it, death is okay. Or we've discovered that he was actually a criminal and a rapist. Therefore, the criminalization of someone then snatches the imago day of someone. It's just not, it's just not true. So if 
my encouragement and admonishment is to put down the talking points yeah. that, that your privilege might give you quick access to and sit and actually hear the plight and the burden and allow the Holy Spirit to conjure up, here it is, empathy, um, so that you might hear, so that you might carry the burden of your brother that is your sibling. The Holy Spirit ain't conjuring up defensiveness. The, ain't, you ain't, ain't, ain't nan time where the Lord says the Spirit shall make you defensive against, against no, 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 no. It's not about being defensive. It's about listening because there may be something to your, your, your siblings of color in their burden. But you've got to ask yourself, why have we made it so easy to ignore our tears? Why have we made it so comfortable and so convenient to ignore the cries and the yeah. plead? Why have we made it so easy? We don't do that with sex trafficking. I ain't never heard nobody say with sex. We've been doing sex trafficking work, um, work, work against sex trafficking uh, in Thailand and Pati, one of the capitals of sex trafficking. Not one time have I ever gotten to eat anybody in our congregation that says, help me explain why this is a real issue. Show me the stats. I don't, I don't, I don't understand why this is a significant thing. And most people hadn't even experienced it, hadn't seen it. They don't have family members that have experienced it, but they still believe it and they give to it and they support it. Yeah. When we talk about the black family and the experience, we got to prove it. We got to show you stats. We got to show videos and you still don't believe that is relevant or important. And you know, people that have family members that have been affected by the justice system, me, Ephraim and every, just about every other person color got a, a police about, got a story about police. You've never, never asked us to justify the child that's being sex trafficked, that, that injustice, but this injustice, we got to show full proof before we can get an ounce of empathy for you to even believe us. That's some of the stuff that we swim yeah. in that's got to be discipled out of us. You know, it's interesting that we've lost sight biblically that Jesus actually exposed bias. So you could go, Jesus is taking heat for having lunch with a tax collector. Now, some of that is legitimate because of the system the tax collector was participating in and what it was doing to people, especially those under-resourced. But beyond that, along with that, the bias upon tax collectors is why people said, why is he meeting with tax collectors? When Jesus allowed the woman with the issue of blood to touch his clothes, that was controversial because of the bias placed upon diseased women. When he went to Samaria and met with the Samaritan woman, that caused controversy because of the bias around Samaritans. When a prostitute <laughs> encountered Jesus, that was controversial because of the bias upon prostitutes. Man, I could keep going on. When he stood between the stone throwers and the woman caught in adultery. What makes those moments significant? Because Jesus is declaring and demonstrating the kingdom of God, but he's also exposing the biases of the Roman Empire and of the Jewish religious establishment at the time. Wow. And, and, wow. and I'm going, why won't we just follow Jesus and expose every systemic bias we can? Preach, yeah. that's so good. That's so good. Now, Grant, I want, I want to ask you, Grant, th this moment to many seems like a moment like no other because of the global response 
and the multiracial, multicultural response of millennials. And uh, the other one right behind them, is that, that, that Z? Yeah, Gen Z, yeah. Or what are we going to call the next generation? We didn't ran out of alphabets. We just I've gonna, come to the do, conclusion. We're going to A-A-B-B-C-C? What are we going to nah, do? No, better. If you guys are the Xers, I'm Gen Y, Gen Z. Jesus is coming back after that one. There you go. That's, that's the ball game. We, <laughs> that's it? We gonna call, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to call the next one to heaven. We're going to call them heaven. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> no, real talk, real talk. They're calling on the alpha generation. So they're just kind of starting over. And so I always think, man, you don't want to be called the beta generation after them. <laughs> right. So, so Greg, what, what do you see that is unique and distinctive? Like, it seems like, is it true that they're, they're like Gen Z is a generation that is like, I don't care how my mama and daddy is processing this moment. I don't care how my mom and daddy's church is responding or not responding in this moment. I'm responding. What, it, 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 what do you see there in terms of the response in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I really, I'm, I do struggle. Like I said uh, earlier about like, for me, I do think so many young people are growing up with diverse friendships, even honestly, diverse relationships in the sense of uh, marriage. Uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, middle school, uh, biracial relationships were pretty uncommon. There was a few, um, especially uh, a white girl dating a black guy. That was always pretty rare. Well, I'm seeing that a lot more um, in Gen Z and even my generation as we get older. Uh, so I do think, again, that, I mean, the advocacy you have when you have semi put yourself in someone's shoes or you're, you're vicariously experiencing some of it because of someone you love. But I mean, these are small things, but I mean, if you, for a lot of the next generation, you, if you play, if people say racism doesn't exist for the next generation, I'll say play call next generation because the N word is thrown out like crazy. It's insane how many uh, predominantly white people are using that word um, all the time through video games, through uh, when they're behind a screen, if you will. I'm sure it plays out in social media as well. And so um, that is still a problem for sure. But I, I will say uh, it's hard. I think this generation is dying to be a part of something uh, bigger than themselves. Uh, my, my wish is that the church, which is, I think, the greatest cause there has ever been. Um, and I think that uh, I'm actually would say the lack of the church jumping onto this is uh, one of the major causes probably of our generation. Uh, but I think the lack of the church being intentional about like even differing between the gospel and justice is actually making us uh, lose this next generation. Because, I mean, just look at the next generation. They're dying to be a part of a cause. They put an ice bucket on their head. They'll put, uh, they'll go look for Coney, if you guys remember the Coney 2012 video. They'll put an X on their hand. They'll look for Pokemon. Like, they, they're dying for this community, this cause. Um, and I always say, why is the most cause-oriented generation in the world right now not connecting to the most cause-oriented organization in the world right now, the church? And I think it's because we are so scared to jump onto these things, whether we think it's going to make us too political, it's going to make us offend some of our congregation. But uh, if we're scared of losing some of our congregation today, I would say you should be more afraid that you're going to lose the generation tomorrow. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful because it is the most cause-driven generation, but not connected to the greatest cause organization in history. That broke. That's a word, Grant. That's a word. 
if you don't publish that grant, me and Albert gonna co-write it. You better <laughs> y'all do go. it. Y'all do it. You better go. You better go. I, I just tweeted it. It's already out. <laughs> <laughs> and I put my name at the. I put little dash Albert Tate because I said it right after. <laughs> you. So, there it is, man. Hey, I got a question for both of y'all. I wanted to. I want. I've been. This is like my one. I really wanted to ask y'all. I. I got an interview with Todd um, last week, Brian Loritz, and I wanted to even talking about bias, prejudice uh, is I asked him, I said, you know, there's this a lot of talk around racial diversity in the church. I mean, we've never seen as many predominantly white churches be as intentional as they have been about talking about race. I mean, you're not going to go to a major conference without some panel on race. There's always going to be a black guy, a white guy. I'm the Mexican guy. There's an Asian guy. And we're going to talk about race. It's, it's everywhere. And even bleeding into um, how do we hire uh, racially diverse uh, staff, uh, elders, leaders, uh, and especially how we diversify our audience in our congregation. And so I, I said, there's never been so much intentionality around that. However, and this is my question for y'all, is it does seem to be a lot more uh, people of color joining white churches while you don't see a lot of white people joining people of color churches. Um, I know Albert, me and you are, are good friends with Conway Edwards. He's I'm in Dallas and uh, he's, he's one of the best at just being very intentional. I want, I don't want just a black church. I want a diverse church. Um, but it seems that a lot more people of color will go to a white church more than white people will go to a, a church that's predominantly people of color. Uh, why do y'all think that is? Uh, how do we, how do we break that cycle? Um, I'll tell you real quick is what Brian said is he has found that white people don't tend to have the stamina that it takes to be the minority while people of color have already experienced what it's like to be a minority. So they can go to a church like that. Um, and I, I'd love to hear y'all's opinion. Cause I think that prejudice and that bias as we go into this conversation actually impacts well that we might have diverse churches among predominantly white churches, but, it's going to be a struggle for Latino churches or Asian churches or African-American churches to diversify themselves. Pastor Tate. <laughs> yeah. What, I, what I've experienced with, first of all, I, I have, I planted a multi-ethnic church almost nine years ago. And mm -hmm. I would say it's probably majority white, uh, but just like 50%, 55% and then 40, 45% everything Southern California has to offer black, Latino, Asian, Armenian, like all, like we got all the goods. We got everybody. Right. What I have noticed is that for many um, serving in a multi-ethnic church under a black pastor has been a, um, a new experience for them, but we've created mm -hmm. a space where God has done amazing things. God has just done amazing things. I say that to say I'm a unicorn and I can count probably on my hands the amount of multi-ethnic churches that are led by black leaders yeah. uh, that, that truly, or a black leader that hasn't assimilated to whiteness culturally. Did you, you, did you see what I said yeah. there? You know, yeah. like, so yeah. um, I'm black from Mississippi. So as, as my friends would say, I'm, I'm blackity black, black, black. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I break. Yeah, anyway. So, but, but I think Brian is on to something. The posture and the disposition of not being comforted at every turn of the conversation. Yeah. 
and being willing to sit in something that's uncomfortable, that's just not centered around you, is a new position for the American evangelical white when it comes to Christianity in, the, in their theological settings. So there's a, there's a, what I call a brittleness that says, and it's actually been proven statistically with some research that Dr. Corey Edwards did, when white people get uncomfortable, they leave. They, it, it's just that simple. Once the conversation gets uncomfortable, statistically, if they get spiritually uncomfortable, get spiritually challenged, when, especially when it comes to race and that conversation, they will take their ball and go home and go to a place where the subject, as a matter of fact, they'll even say it. They'll even say, why do we have to talk about this? Why are we still talking about it? Why do we need the very essence of bringing it up? It has been discipled into them that, the, that to talk about racism is to bring about division in the body of Christ, and therefore yeah. to talk about it is actually sinful. That's, that's discipleship. Like, like yeah. that's discipled into them. They have a theological conviction about it. So when they see brothers like me and Ephraim and Brian Ritz coming around talking about this biblical vision for racial reconciliation and race, they think the very essence of our conversation is sinful. And to talk about it is to breed division in the church. How about that for a demonic strategy to keep us in bondage? You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So for, for whites, and, 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 and I talk about my church because, yo, I don't know where they came from, but we found them. <laughs> the white siblings that are in our church, bro, their ability to sit in this conversation. We have a center for racial reconciliation. We just did a thing called table talks. where We, we had a talk for white men concerning white privilege and uh, white women talking about uh, white fragility, going through books like that. We had mixed up. We had yeah. uh, people of color talking about trauma. We, we yo, We've been we've been in it and we had over 500 people go through table talks that were all centered on race. So I'm so encouraged and I have hope for the future because I'm seeing what I like to call a new woke Christian white community that's yeah. leaning in and saying, no, I'm not about to flood your emails with with hate because i didn't like the way you talked about it i'm flooding your emails with saying wow i've never been so challenged in my life i'm learning i'm listening and i'm thankful i don't agree with everything but i'm in here and i'm thankful yo grant bro i ain't never seen this before i ain't never seen this before so while it's a challenge i'm seeing fruit from woke whites that are listening and engaging in the conversation biblically concerning yeah. race yeah. Amen, man. Um, I, I don't know how much I could add to, to what was just said. Um, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil in her book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, now in its uh, 2.0 version, talks about that when we're in a catalytic moment and we're definitely in a uh, multifaceted catalytic moment right now, there's two roads uh, that you can take in a general sense. One is the road of preservation and the other is the road of transformation. And that's the difference here is um, white brothers and sisters coming into a multi-ethnic church led by non-white 
leadership, non-white pastors have to come in seeing it as a transformation journey for them or else it will be very difficult and painful. If they're coming in to preserve the views, the mental frameworks, the the emotional uh, uh, position that they already have, because people of color, we have an advantage on white people to this degree, that we know how to code switch, we know how to go into an environment good, that we good. know we will not be the dominant voice, we will not be the dominant culture, the dominant expression, and yet we find place. We find a way to s- flourish and thrive the best we can. We know what it's like to, to have to go to white people for a loan, for admission, for permission, for a raise, for acceptance, for platform, for all that, where for many of our white brothers and sisters, they've never had to constantly go before people of color for approval, for a loan, for acceptance, yeah, yeah. for admission, for promotion, for affirmation, for voice. Like how many, you know, to go, is it okay if I say something? If I say it like this, is that all right? Matter of fact, as, as Albert talked about, they've been discipled and conditioned to go, if, if, if I have to ask permission from people of color or make sure it's okay, that's now called cancel culture or, or a form of cancel culture. The fact that I can't freely come in here and say whatever I want to say and be the dominant expression and be the dominant voice and everybody else have to live with that. The other layer here is white brothers and sisters to a degree get to live in a world um, um, that um, where they don't even have to unpack being white. So, so uh, when white people go to quote unquote white church, um, they're not, they're not saying, Oh, I go to a white church in Roseville. Oh, I go to a white church. I go to a a white church in Edina. Yeah. They they just say, I go to church. church, Name the church they go to. But when they go to a church, like I co-pastor, they go, Oh, I went to this multi-ethnic church. I went to this urban church. I went to this black church. I went to this Hispanic church. I went to this Asian church. And so they don't have to, unpack that there's actually a cultural racial connotation to what they're doing. Um, and, and I'm saying some, cause Oh man, when I, I'm not trying to paint too wide a brush cause I, I've been beat up enough over the last two months over that. So uh, we got some questions up here. So let, let's engage them. So one question says um, in the city, what can we do to impact the community we are in? It feels like an us and them attitude. So I'll take a first stab at that. Then Grant, Albert, you jump in. I'll say, because uh, it says here, in the city, what can we do to impact the community we are in? It feels like an us and them attitude. I would consider Paul in Acts when he went to Athens. When it says when he went into the city, he saw the idolatry and the sin and man, he was he was angry. 
But then he went from there and he reasoned with the people in the synagogue. He talked with people in the marketplace. He met the artists and the poets and the politicians. And eventually he took their own cultural cues. He took elements from the culture and presented the good news of Jesus back to them in a way that it transformed some lives. So I wonder if part of the us and them attitude is because we got to be careful not to embrace everything in the subcultures of the communities that we find ourselves in. But we also can't draw a line in the sand and make enemies out of the subcultures of the city, of the communities we're in. Maybe we need to build relational credibility and engage the communities that surround us for transformative purposes. Anything on that you, you want to add, Pastor Tate? Yeah, I, I would just, I, I mean, I love that. Uh, and I'm looking at the other questions that are coming in and they're getting good too. So I want to, I'll answer this one quickly. Yeah. So we can jump on to some other ones. But I would say if you're in the city, look for the people that are doing the work. Nine times out of the 10, nine times out of 10, you're probably not original in thought concerning your help, your desire to, to help the city. There are probably some organizations that help the city. There are probably some organizations that probably don't look like you, live like you, or vote like you. What if you show up in those spaces and say, what does it mean for me to serve and sit under your leadership? Um, and with that, that means listening don't come a lot of times with, with an external lens that says, I think I know what yeah, to do. Go, go, go ahead. Oh, Grant, were you going to say something, Grant? No, 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 my bad. I, I was going to, I'm going to set you the next question. Oh, okay. Um, no. I, I was just going to say, don't assume that you know what's best for, for the community. Go and listen, sit, and be mentored by the people that are in that community doing work on the front lines. Look up your local 501c3s, nonprofits. Look up, uh, they're probably, you know, the black church, yo. Nine times out of 10, they are usually in or a part of programs that are doing city work in, in the city, many of them, or there are organizations that do that. Go sit, listen, learn, and serve. And out of that, God might stir and do something pretty amazing. All right, let's get the next question. So, Albert, I would do the next one. Uh, so, one of the questions from the audience says, what are the suggested initial steps to disciple out bias or prejudice for those disposed to the foundational ideology of white superiority? Ooh-wee, that's a deep one right there. Did I? And since Albert Tate brought up the way we are discipled into bias and prejudice, yeah. uh, I, I think they're wanting you to talk a little bit more about then how do you disciple that out of some, how do you re-engineer that when, when, when that's been discipled in, Yo. how do you disciple it out? Well, I've been living in this space and really wrestling with it a lot. Uh, one of the things in, 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 um, in the new year, I'm hosting a preaching masterclass where we're, this is going to be the theme of the conference. I don't think you've ever been to a conference where the theme is discipling out racism. But I'm, this is the theme. Can I register now? Can I register? <laughs> I register now. Registration open in a couple of months. But uh, by early 2021 in February, it, this will be showing then too. Um, we're going to begin to train pastors, preachers, teachers, leaders um, on how to do that. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. There's no way you're going to disciple it out if you don't see it for what it is. So one of the first things we got to do is we got to see the privilege in whiteness 
as normalcy. We got to see it so that way we can be delivered and freed from it. So the first thing we got to do is acknowledge that we got a problem. We got to acknowledge that we got a problem. A couple of great books and resources. Uh, uh, White Wake is a brilliant, brilliant book that talks about the ways that we need to wake up to the whiteness. And parenthetically, when I say whiteness, that doesn't mean white people. Whiteness is a system that that sets whiteness as normative. Whiteness is the system that says baby Barbie dolls have been were white for decades before that changed. Whiteness is a system that says band-aids are skin tone and the skin color is 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 made for white skin. They we just started to get band-aids that got different colors on it from the band-aid company. That that's an that's whiteness. Uh whiteness is for years emoji thumbs were white because the assumption that if you got an iPhone and you got a thumb, your hand is white. I've, I've just been able to use a black emoji thumb in the last few years. That's just happened to me because whiteness is normative has been, we've been swimming in it for so long. So to open up our eyes to see it wide awake, another great book, White Fragility, another great book, Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. Um, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil's uh, book, uh, uh, Road to Reconciliation, uh, and she's got volume one, volume two, and then one that just came out, I think, that talks about bravery, being brave. So a lot of those, but they help you, uh, Insider Outsider by Brian Loritz, uh, Eric Mason, Woke Church um, is also uh, a couple of good ones. All of those, and, and of course, we got Dr. Ephraim Smith, who's got a list, who's got a catalog uh, that that's been going. Doc, I just remember you doing a book on hip hop and theology back in the day. That was just so phenomenal um, as well. I don't even know if any of that, if that, if you, if they can still get access to that stuff. Uh, Dr. Oh Smith. yeah. We still selling it. We did. Yeah, man. Until yeah. Jesus, until Jesus returns, it comes to get me. Those books are selling. That's good. That's good. So his book, but, but start learning, learn, learn, listen, learn, listen, learn, listen. That's how you begin to see it. Because just like with any other sin, any other sin, in order for us to call it out, we got to be able to see it within. So give me eyes to see Lord is the prayer and sitting in those books and those studies, um, looking at passages like Dr. Ephraim just walked through in 10 minutes. I'm telling you, like he just walked through them all and just showed you all these images where Jesus is calling out bias. Would you do the hard hermeneutical work and see the ethnic realities that are happening in that text? Do the hard hermeneutical work and see the ethnic realities that are happening in, at the Passover at uh, Pentecost and what that first church looked like. It was a multi-ethnic church. It was a multi-ethnic expression. Racism was a part of it. Peter was tripping. Jesus said, boy, you tripping. You missing the black. Let me open your eyes. Like all of that's right there. Begin to give, get uh, sermonic eyes, as my my mentor Bishop Almo would say of, of, of his mentor, he said, "You got to get you got to get sermonic eyes so you can begin to see uh, what God is saying concerning His children and we as siblings and our oneness and our ability to come together." So the first step to discipling out though is seeing it and get some resources and sit and be mentored by minority leaders and teachers. You ain't got to have coffee with them. If you sit with their books, they're mentoring you. Sit and be discipled and mentored by some minorities that are speaking on these issues and some white guys that are doing some great jobs at translating. So the David Swanson, the um, uh, re-discipling 
the white church um wide awake wide awake all of those are great books um that that are opening us up to those things we got another question here uh it says uh it was mentioned about the need for empathy as a white evangelical pastor, though, I am already initiating conversations and preaching against racism. Am I still behind the eight ball when it comes to empathy? If so, how can I communicate it accurately and passionately? Uh, I, I would say you, the issue here may not be that you're behind the eight ball when it comes to empathy. I just think that um, there's another level in preaching and teaching about the issue of racism uh, that can, that can, um, that is important. I'll say it that way. And what that is, is sometimes when we're talking about racism and, and Albert Tate, you talked about this so good earlier when you said we can't wait till the Ahmed Arbery video. And then in response, we make a race statement or we start preaching about racial reconciliation. Racial righteousness, racial reconciliation, biblical justice should be an offensive, prioritized strategy of the church that we don't need a horrific videotaped event to force us to deal with. Um, and so I'm going, people need to see that the Bible is the most multi-ethnic, multicultural piece of literature they'll mm. ever put their hands on. Yeah. So how you move behind, you got to move beyond empathy. Empathy is important. So we, you got to empathy. That's one stage. Empowerment is another stage. Equipping people to make disciples of all nations. You need empathy. You need empowerment. You need equipping. You need engagement. I, I should man. write that down. It's really good. Yeah, I'm doing it. You need all, all four of those. Seconds of a book. Yes. I'm taking this quote from Ephraim. <laughs> and the reason you need that is because here's where the bias kicks in again. The bias kicks in because I didn't know until five years after I received my master's degree that Augustine was black. That, that one of the, the fathers... Of, of Christianity, Tortullian, and African. I, I, you know, and so there are many people, they don't know that the way that they're impacted by bias systemically is by continuing to look at the white-skinned, blue-eyed, straight-haired Jesus as if that's really him because he's in the Sunday school book, he's on the glass stained window of black churches. There are black churches that have a white Jesus on the glass stained window. Uh, black churches that have white angels yeah. that, that they think all of the disciples that followed Jesus were Greco-Roman. And so um, teaching and preaching and presenting how multi-ethnic and multicultural the people that we're talking about in the Bible are. Paul had Roman citizenship, but he wasn't ethnically, culturally a Roman. But when you see a picture of him, you, you would think he, him and Constantine have this, were at the same family reunion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Constantine was a lot younger, but you get the point. Him and Herod. You'd have thought him and Herod. 
We're at the same family reunion. And I'm telling you, the potato salad at Paul's family reunion was different than the potato salad <laughs> at Pontius Pilate's family reunion. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Man, a uh, good book to read is Thomas Oden, who's a phenomenal theologian. But his book on how Africa shaped Christianity opened my mind up, Ephraim. That's how I learned about Augustine. That's how I, he just took us to school on the influence of Africa on Christianity. Um, and he challenges white theologians for not holistically telling the story. And parenthetically, you, many of you know Thomas Oden is a white theologian. So uh, that, that was a defining work. Defining word. Well, Grant, Albert, I think we got time for one last question before we wind this down. And okay. what a question to wind down on. And and this is going to get us back to, this is a candid conversation about what's going yeah. on right now. Yeah. Talk about the tension between the church and the Black Lives Matter movement. Do we have to agree with everything to be able to participate or partner in this movement? Can can I can I take that one? Please. <laughs> Go ahead, bro. <laughs> can I, I well, well let me do this. I'm gonna answer the question with a question. Our understanding of a statement and a movement and a movement that uses the statement, but does the statement fully encompass all the values of the movement? And if I say the statement, does that mean that I am then held accountable for all of the understandings and the implications of the movement and what's there? So that's, that's the question. Does a statement, does a mantra that is being used by a movement then make me guilty of association by that movement in all of its dealings or can I make a statement and then be distinctive with how I deal with all the implications or am I automatically associated with it? That's the question. While we wanna put on the witness stand Black Lives Matter statement and the Black Lives Matter movement, before we call them to the witness stand, I would like to call another witness and that is the Make America Great Again statement. When you say Make America Great Again, are you now tethered and tied to all that is Donald Trump and that has marked his administration? And while we will celebrate some things of that thing, Donald Trump and his divorce rate, which evangelicals we should be very concerned about, his engagement with Playboy uh, women, we should, you know, whether we should be concerned about that. The amount of people that have been prosecuted uh, around his administration and his staff. Uh, now, now, let me help you before you lose your political righteous mind. Let me just say this. Uh, I'm an independent. I have voted for both elephants and donkeys and been disappointed both times. So I try to consistently stay surrendered to the lamb. But what I realize is that Make America Great Again, while a statement you may ascribe to, does that automatically tie you to all that is Donald Trump? Uh, the lack of 
the lack of spiritual fruit that we see in some of his tweets. Does that tie you to all of that? Now, let me say this about Black Lives Matter that I've triggered half. <laughs> Black Lives Matter, the statement started way before the organization. Black Lives Matter, the statement came out of outrage and the feeling of worthlessness after seeing yet another black man killed by the hand of police. So they begin to shout with rage, with passion, with conviction, and with woundedness, black lives matter, because it felt like the way the world was treating us, that they, they didn't at all. It does not mean black lives matter more. It just means we matter. That statement became a mantra, became a t-shirt, became all those things. It became a, a, a sound and a mantra of a frustration of a people. And out of that, some folks got together and says, let's start an organization and let's call it Black Lives Matter. And let's have an organization and thing. Most of the black folks that I know that are shouting the statement are not aligned or tied to the movement, to be honest many of them don't even know what the movement is. So while, yes, there is a distinction between the statement, the declaration, and the organization, the organization is, uh, they have several things that are very problematic for those of us that will call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Several things. Just like I think um, with Make America Great Again, there are several things that are tied to the administration of Donald Trump that as a Christian should give us pause, should give us, make us think, whoa, I'm not sure if that fully aligns biblically to where we are. So, 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 so discretion there, I would say discretion on both and let's make sure that we're shouting the worth and the value of black lives, recognizing that that doesn't necessarily tether us to the movement that started post that statement and all the implications that they believe. We would take issue very significantly with many of those move with many of the implications of that movement, just like we, we should with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Neither one of them comf comfortably fit under the biblical ethic and the biblical view of how we see the world. So we should resist the temptation to associate ourselves too heavily with any three of those organizations, recognizing that a, as a believer, we shouldn't comfortably fit under the lamb I mean, we shouldn't comfortably fit under the elephant or the donkey. We should comfortably fit under the lamb. And I think a believer would have also a problem fitting comfortably under the Black Lives Matter movement. But our mouths should comfortably fit the phrase and should be able to say it unabashedly because that's what Jesus would say. He went to Samaria and said, Samaritan lives matter. And why did he say that? Why did he say we must need to go through Samaria? Because ain't nobody else going through there and there's a problem and they feel they fear that there's a lack of worth and I need to go and shout their worth and tell this woman at the well, girl, your Samaritan life matters. So I think it's important for us to not fit under the organization, but for that phrase to be able to fit in our mouth because I think Jesus would say it. Yeah, it's it's a multifaceted thing. I mean, look, the, some of the people that feel so obligated to separate the the phrase from the organization or the movement, I'm wondering, can they name any of the eight major organizations that made up the civil rights movement? Because yeah. the civil rights movement wasn't one organization. It was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was CORE. It was SNCC. It was the Urban League. It was the NAACP. It was the Montgomery Improvement Association. It, I mean, I could go on. You, you know what I mean? And it's like we, we, um, 
we, we can't do to this moment uh, what we've done to the civil rights movement and acted like it was just one person and it wasn't all, all the, I didn't even name the Black Panthers. I didn't even name Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. And so we found a way to figure out the need for equality in the civil rights movement as the main thrust without getting caught up on all of the multiple organizations that filled it. Man, with that, we out of time. Lord have mercy. Grant, you're going to have to give us some closing comments and, and just take us out. But man, yeah. if you didn't agree with what we were saying today, what you can't say is that we didn't have a candid conversation. We had a candid <laughs> conversation. Do you agree or not? And I'm fine with you disagreeing with. My wife don't agree with half the stuff, but she still loves it. <laughs> so I ain't yeah. mad at, at the disagreement. Grant, take us home. I'll just say I, I really enjoyed talking to y'all. Thank y'all. I think the timing of this, all the ways that it worked out on the BLM or Black Lives Matter and uh, just again, if you, if we, as, uh, the church don't take this seriously, I mean, you are this close to losing the next generation. Um, I, I struggle with, uh, I'm half Mexican, half, half white. And, um, I didn't, I didn't get introduced to the tension and division in the church until I became a Christian. Um, I actually had a lot more diversity pre-Christ than post-Christ. And, uh, I just always say, as long as bars and clubs are more diverse than the church, then why would the next generation want to join a ministry of reconciliation? Mm. Um, and so this is, this is a huge deal to the next generation. It's a huge deal today. And, and, and even talking about Black Lives Matter, this message is a rephrased wording that's been said for centuries now. Um, I think of, I'm trying to pull up a picture real quick of, I think of William Wilberforce in the Clapham sect. Um, they, got, they would say, am I not a man and a brother? Um, their work, their images. And then right here is, uh, I, I am a man, simply, I am a man. Um, this is the same message is just, I matter. I am equal. I am notice me as well. See me like, uh, it's not, I don't, I think, I think it'll be a beautiful day when we uh, get away from using all these things as scapegoats so we can like not tackle the real issues. Like, let's just talk about the, or let's talk this or about the gospel losing a generation because we're trying to have these like arguments that are, are losing uh, not even a generation just losing the position we could have as a church and i think like you albert said that's where jesus probably would be at the front front end of that conversation and that charge and so with that maybe uh albert would you pray us out and uh yeah that's the end of this candid conversation God, thank you so much for these leaders. Thank you for this work. Um, God, we talked a lot about um, the realities of what's going on. God, we pray for Jacob Blake. Um, we pray for those families that lost loved ones. Um, we pray for those families that have become, they've had casualties. Their cost, we, we just talked about it for an hour, but it's cost them their loved ones. It's cost them their life. So there's been a high price that's been paid. So Father, we, we thank you and we know you identify with that because you gave your son on behalf of an injustice system, an injustice system. 
So, Father, we thank you so much for this conversation. We thank you for Exponential. We thank you for every leader that's engaging this content. We pray that it just won't be another conversation, but that the Holy Spirit would speak in a way that brings it to us to a place of conviction and change and transformation so that we might live and lead for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.